Hello, my name is David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. This week we're going to have a slightly different kind of conversation. Over the past couple of episodes, like everyone else I guess, we've been obsessing about Trump, about Clinton, the debates, who said what, the latest outrage. We're going to come back to that. We're just under two weeks away from the presidential election. Next week, we'll give you our preview of what we really think is going to happen. This week, we're going to focus a little bit more on the United Kingdom and what's going on in politics here. And my special guest is Sophie Hanna. She is an internationally best-selling writer of detective fiction. She's also an award-winning poet. Her most recent books have been the new Hercule Poirot novels. She's brought the famous Belgian detective back to life. Sophie lives in Cambridge. I've talked to her quite a bit in recent years about politics, and I've always been struck by how fresh her approach is. As you'll hear in a minute, she takes politics really seriously. She, she cares about it. But she also tries to assess each argument on its merits. And these days, that is incredibly rare. And we talk about that too. One quick sidebar on this. One of the things that we talk about that Sophie takes very seriously is the AV referendum. Some people may not remember it quite as well as she does. It was the first in the three big referendums that we've had. First AV, then Scotland, then Brexit. It's the one people tend to forget. It was in 2011 and it was asking people, did they want to change the voting system to something a little bit more like proportional representation? That referendum really mattered too. It was in some ways as important as the other two, but we've forgotten about it. Sophie hasn't. You'll hear that in a moment. But I started off by asking her how she feels about Brexit three months on. I mean, it distressed me when it happened because I was in France. I was doing some events to, to publicise my new book in France. And just before I went to bed in my hotel, I thought, I'll just look and, and check that Remain is going to win. That everything's OK. Yeah. And it became clear after, I think, after the Newcastle result came in, where it was a win for Remain, but it wasn't as decisive as everyone had thought. I started to think this is not in the bag at all. I'd better stay up and watch all night. Um, and I think watching it away from home in France, where obviously all the French people I was talking to the next day thought it was a huge disaster for Britain. And before I set off home, a French journalist said to me, I hope you will be OK going back to your lost country. <laughs> and I thought, oh, my God, that's laying it on a bit thick, mate. <laughs> but... To be honest, I've always thought, I'm very optimistic just by nature. I hate feeling miserable, so I will do whatever I can to think that things will be OK. And so as soon as I saw that Brexit had won, I thought to myself, well, OK, there are people who are saying that economically and in the long run and in every possible way, we would be better off if we left the EU. Uh, you know, people I respect, clever people, people saying the EU was a doomed monolith that was always going to fail. So I thought, I'm going to hope that those people are right. I mean, I did really want to remain personally, partly for sentimental reasons. I thought it was more friendly and sociable to all stick together. I do like experts, contrary to a lot of people's... Contrary to apparently. the British people, as we're told. Well, I mean, you know, especially on matters to do with money you know, the economy, I don't know anything. I mean, I can barely work out what tip to give a taxi driver. So if that chap who's head of the Bank of England comes along and says, it would definitely be better if we did X for the economy, 
I just believe all those people. So, you know, it did seem before the referendum that the weight of opinion from economists, uh, business managers, all those people was that we should definitely remain. So if we had the referendum again, I would totally vote remain again. But I'm not willing to sit around like some of the remain fans are at the moment saying, look, everybody, it's as doomed as we thought it would be. Look how terrible everything is, because that's just not in my nature. So I'm now pinning all my hopes on everything somehow being okay. And on Twitter, I follow people of all political views. Which is very rare, it has to be so. Well, I mean, to me, it's really important because there's nothing, I think there's nothing worse than just thinking you know everything and that all the people who agree with you are right. I always start from the premise that I'm as likely to be wrong as right. Uh, And indeed, many people who know me constantly tell me I am wrong. So that backs up that view of mine. Um, But yeah, I now think if Brexit is what's happening, let's try and do it and hope that it will all be brilliant, as the intelligent wing of the Brexit lobby have always said it might be brilliant. When I hear things about the pound suddenly not being worth anything, uh, I sort of panic a bit. But then I look for someone on Twitter who's saying that may be bad for imports, but it's great for exports. Yeah, that's the great thing about having all (laughs) views available to you on Twitter. You can find someone to cheer you up. you can find someone to cheer you up. I mean... You know, going back to this expert thing, I always thought that I do not have the necessary knowledge to actually take any intelligent view on what would be best in this regard for the UK. I I just don't have those facts at my disposal. And I know that I don't, because if you ask me something about books, if you say to me, you know, why is Agatha Christie the best crime writer ever? I could tell you, I would be able to argue my case and be absolutely confident I was right and take on all comers. Um, And with Brexit in particular, because the economy is involved, and that's something I really know nothing about, I've just always felt that I'm not really best placed to make the decision or to have a view. Uh, And that's precisely why I listen to as many experts as possible. I listened to both sides in the campaign. I read as many views as I could on Twitter in a desperate attempt to try and get better informed. But I also couldn't help thinking, you know, I'm not up to making this decision and therefore nor are most people I know. I I kind of wished that some experts had just sorted it out and not consulted us all. But I know that's a very unpopular view. My husband keeps telling me I must retain my belief in democracy. Um, But, but yeah, it's hard. (laughs) Last night I was um, at an event where... An American was asking the people there from Cambridge about Brexit, and it triggered straight away a kind of emotional outpouring. People remembering the night like you were, what they were doing, the moment when the penny dropped, the tears, the the feeling sick. And then the general view was, a bit like you, they tried to think, well, this is now a fact and we need to deal with it. And for a few months, they were okay with that. And then in the last couple of weeks, once it's become clear that this government is now going down a particular path, and certain politicians more or less have the future of the country in their hands and there's not much opposition. The fear has come back and that feeling, so maybe it would be nice if the experts decided, but it's not going to be the experts, it's going to be the the cabinet, which probably isn't a group of experts in this sense. Do you have any of that? Do you have any, has any of the fear come back in the sense that actually it's politicians and it's a particular group of politicians and British politics is in a pretty strange state at the moment because there isn't really an opposition capable of functioning. Well, I mean, British politics is in such a strange state for all kinds of reasons and global politics is in a strange state. Because of that, no, I don't have fears because... I basically feel as though we just have no idea what might happen. I mean, everyone's talking about Brexit and Theresa May saying, you know, we're going to make a success of it. 
But that is at this stage just talk, you know, Article 50 hasn't been triggered. So many things have happened in politics recently that just if you put them in a, in a novel, people would say that's a hugely implausible twist. I just feel I have no idea what might happen next, and, and it's not in my power to, uh, you know, do anything about it. I mean, probably very fortunately. So I'm just not going to worry about it. I, I just think either everything will be okay or it won't. There's nothing I can do about it. And I'm now kind of watching politics as though it's a surreal drama. But for me, the worst moment was the the night, being in France, having this hugely unexpected defeat, as I saw it at the time. Although, you know, unlike a lot of Remainers, I am very willing to now hope for the best for Brexit. I'm, I sort of feel that from a calmer point of view, if we sit around moaning, saying how awful it's going to be, we will make it awful. Whereas if everybody thinks positive and tries to make Brexit as good as possible, then better things will happen. I do slightly believe in karma. I don't know whether I'm allowed to say that on a serious podcast. But um, <laughs> that was that was the worst point for me. Um, and it made me think, whenever there's a major political event, again, I'm going to make sure to be at home. Because as soon as I got home and started gossiping about it with my family and saw that Cambridge was still the same as it's always been. I mean, I, I adore Cambridge, and one of the reasons I do is because it's just so civilised. I don't, I don't sort of feel that Cambridge will ever get worse in any way. I could be naive. So from now on, general elections referendums, although I hope we don't have any more. I'm going to make sure I'm at home <laughs> to think, watch it with my family. I'd, we're assuming at this point that it's not going to happen, but were Trump to win, could you be karmic about that? Well, the weird thing about... I mean, I, I just feel so far removed from American politics. I, I don't feel as invested. I know in, it's potentially a bigger deal if Trump gets elected. It's you know potentially more, more sort of life-changing for all of us. Um, but I don't feel emotionally invested in the way that I did in Brexit. And I think it's, you know, people are always more bothered about things that it feels like it's it's their thing. It affects them personally. I watched a documentary, for example, where loads of women who were in love with Peter Sutcliffe, the Yorkshire Ripper, writing him love letters. And he's writing back to all of them saying, oh, darling, you are the only one. Uh, and on this documentary, the, the interviewer said to them, don't you mind that he's savagely murdered loads of women? And they kind of go, oh, no, he's such a good person at heart. It's all marvellous. And then just at the end of the programme, the interviewer says, you do know he's writing to lots of other women as well. He's basically cheating on you. And it was so funny. They were like, right, that's it. He is dead to me, that bastard. It's like, right, so you don't mind him carving up a load of other women, but the minute he cheats on you, that's terrible. I, I think it's a bit like that with Trump and Brexit. You know, Brexit, something is potentially being done to me if I was European or I am European, then suddenly I maybe I'm not going to be. Trump doesn't affect me in that quite that same way. I did notice with my bitchy head on that after Brexit some of my American acquaintances were emailing and saying what's wrong with you all over there doing Brexit and I did think well hold on a minute you lot might be on the verge of electing Trump so no cause for massive smugness at this stage. Why do you think that the view that you expressed which is that essentially you don't think you're qualified to judge the future of the British economy and you'd like to leave it up to people who know why was that view so unpopular in the campaign? I mean, do you think the campaign itself, looking back on it now, was fundamentally misjudged, that they, the people who were trying to persuade the British public to vote to remain just didn't understand how to communicate that message? Or, Well, I don't know. Everybody says the campaign was flawed, misjudged and not ideal. And so there must be 
some merit to that argument, I assume. Cause and, so... and the campaign failed, so something was wrong. Yeah, although that's not always... That doesn't always mean something wasn't done as well as it could have been. You know, if everybody or the majority in the country was just determined to make their voice heard and say, we're cross about stuff, listen to us, then the Remain campaign, in theory, could have had tap-dancing unicorns and people would still have voted leave. So it's not always fair to blame a campaign if people were determined to do something anyway. From my personal point of view, I think the campaign got the message across. It got it across to me. I was forever hearing... Cameron and Osborne and Mark Carney and loads of business people in the newspaper were endlessly saying, do not do this, it will be bad, the economy will suffer, all these you know, dangerous things will happen. And I heard that over and over again. On the Leave side, I mean, the main thing I heard was take back control, take back control being repeated endlessly, which I've heard people say that was the great thing about that campaign. They only said three words and those words were very powerful. But to me those words were fairly meaningless because I have long ago accepted that I don't have control or power in a political sense. I mean, I'm fine with that. You know, I I go and vote. The people I vote for hardly ever win. Wherever I happen to be living and whatever the prevailing political mood is, I'm always on the losing side, which is fine. I mean, a vote is just an opportunity to express your opinion, which I do. But I guess I don't have this illusion that anything I might potentially do would lead to me having control of how the country is run. And so that take-back control message just didn't didn't have any effect on me. I mean, I, I feel I'm ambitious if I take back control of one morning in order to get some work done, you know, if I can manage to win um, when the dog is trying to persuade me to play ball and I just want to sit at the computer. That's enough taking back control for me. But I guess I'm fortunate. I have a lot of, you know, some people would say, I work for myself, I don't have a boss, I don't worry about some of the things that that people who voted leave and want to take back control do worry about. Immigration is a huge issue for some people. Um, I don't think I would think about immigration if I didn't hear about it on the news because it's never sort of particularly adversely affected my life. So to me the Remain campaign was actually more effective But in a way, I'm not surprised that it didn't have the effect that it had on me on so many other people because, you know, it's a generalisation, but it's soon started to look as though a lot of the Leave voters just felt that they weren't gaining anything from things the way they are. They felt that they were losing out under the status quo. And so for people who feel they have nothing and are having what little they've got taken away from them... If they hear, well, the economy will suffer, I assume that they might think, well, I don't benefit from the economy being in a good state anyway. But other people do. And maybe it'd be nice for them to feel a bit of pain for us. I mean, I think for a lot of people, the people doing the warning, the economic experts, look like the haves. And some of the voters felt like the have-nots. And so people, people saying to them, but listen, you should worry about my money being worthless. It's not going to be a very powerful argument, I guess. I think the first discussion I ever had with you about politics was about the AV referendum, which was 2011, I think. And I was very struck at the time, not which side you were on, but that you just really took the argument seriously. So I work in a politics department, I hang out with people who study it. I didn't know anyone who (laughs) was as 
thorough as you were in evaluating the weight of the argument both ways, <laughs> which makes you unusual, I think, in this. I, I, I am very thorough and pedantic. Yeah, I became obsessed with the AV referendum. And, you know, as referendums go, that one was by far my favourite. I would love to have that referendum again and not to have had this one because uh, that one was fun and this one was, was depressing. Um, and without giving it away, your side won that one. We yes, re- which we, is we rejected, always nice, which is always nice, I must AD. admit. Not that I'm just swayed by results, but to win is always nice. I must admit, I got into the AV referendum for a, for a slightly weird reason. I was in a gathering of people where somebody else asked my husband, my husband was there as well, and somebody asked him, so what do you think about this AV business? How are you going to vote? And he answered the question. He was also against it. And I thought, oh, well, you know, I'm here too. I'm going to answer. So I said, oh, well, you know, I think I'm probably going to vote against AV, although I hadn't fully made up my mind at that point. And just to remind people, AV is the alternative the vote alternative system, a kind vote. of it, it's not halfway. PR. Yeah. It's not PR. That's the crucial thing, which I will come back to. <laughs> anyway, um, so I thought, well, you know, I'll express an opinion as well. So I, I tentatively expressed an opinion. And this person who had asked my husband literally turned on me and started shouting at me and said, what do you know? I mean, you're just a crime writer. Do you know anything about systems of voting? Have you read? And then this person named some obscure person who'd, who'd you know, written a tome on voting methods. I can't even remember the name. And I, you know, I always keep my cool when people yell at me. I said, well, no, I haven't read whoever's tome, but um, we're all getting asked to vote on this. and." I'm a person, I'm allowed to vote as well, and this is my opinion. And then this person shouted a bit more and swore at me and then eventually stormed out of the room. And I thought, how interesting. Is this such an emotive issue? I didn't think it could possibly be. So then I started to look into it. And when I started to look into it, I realised that, in my opinion anyway, that AV would, would be a terrible idea because first past the post, however flawed it is, and it is flawed has at least one advantage, and that advantage is that every voter is in exactly the same relationship to the election as every other voter. Everybody gets to go, cast their vote, and if the person they vote for gets the most votes in that constituency, they win, and if not, they lose. So every voter is, in that sense, equal. In AV, it makes it more unfair because not every voter is treated equally. Some voters have their first, second and third preferences added up and contributing towards the eventual decision. Other voters have their first preference counted up, but no one ever tallies up their second and third preferences because by the time it gets to that point, there's already a winner. So to me, although you know all the systems have flaws, a system that actually makes the voters that unequal with one another seems crazy you know to go through all that administrative hassle to change to a more unfair system whereas you know proper full PR although it has disadvantages quite big disadvantages I may I may vote against that as well if I had to but at least I can see that it is fair Um, the disadvantage with proper PR is obviously that you can get more power you know with less support and I kind of think because power is so potentially lethal I quite like the idea of a party needing to get really quite a lot of support before they can have any seats anywhere but I can see that is undemocratic but AV it just had nothing 
to recommend it. And I constructed a brilliant analogy involving some people wanting Chinese food, some people wanting Indian food, and some people wanting pizza. And I did a whole table, which totally proved everything. Unfortunately, I haven't got... Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Not anymore. <laughs> so, but it is so striking because you approached it reasonably and rationally and concluded that one answer was right and one answer was wrong. But it was triggered by an emotive argument with someone where presumably the person on the other side of the argument hadn't even begun to think this thing through. Even AV had become this sort of totemic thing for signalling who you are or what you believe in. But this is the whole problem. Everything is like that. And the scariest thing in politics to me, it's not even Donald Trump, although, you know, I look at him and, and listen to him and think genuinely can't understand why anyone would want that guy to be the leader of the free will. I mean, I just don't get it. But it's not even that. If somebody said, here's why I support Trump and laid out a sensible, rational argument why all the things I think are bad are in fact not bad, I might listen to it. The scariest thing for me is that so many people are willing to just say, well, this is just what I want to believe. And so I'm believing it and I'm not listening to you. So to go back to the referendum, when they were doing all those vox pops on the street, you know, why did you vote for Brexit and what do you hope it will achieve? So many people said something to do with how they felt. And I thought, like, like, you know, they're just not listening to us, people would say. And now we're going to make them listen. That's a, I understand that, you know, no one's listening to me. I feel it all the time. You know, why does no one care what I think? Why does no one listen to me? But that is not geared towards the specific, you know, if those people don't get a result from eventual Brexit that makes them feel, ha-ha, now they are listening, what then? And, you know, in terms of politics, I notice that very few people seem willing to listen open-mindedly to the arguments on both sides. Brexit is a good example of that. People make up their mind and then seem to set out to prove the other side wrong at all costs. Um, and I think really in politics and just in life in general, there is nothing more dangerous than being sure you're right about things. And you and you see it more and more. You know, I'm on Twitter all the time. I'm a bit of a Twitter addict. And people just take things in the news and make them mean whatever they want. So when that German Wings pilot crashed a plane into a mountain and people at first said, why on earth would he do such a thing? And there was some suggestion that he'd recently been dumped by his girlfriend and that that might have been a factor. Immediately, feminist commentators popped up saying no that can't be what it was because it, it's not a woman's fault if a murderous man crashes a load of people into a, a mountain that's absolutely nothing to do with a woman well yes obviously the girlfriend is not responsible but we have to be able to talk about what might have been in his head when he did it depression was talked about as a possible cause but then a load of depressive people said hang on i'm depressive and i don't crash planes into mountains we can't men so if we can't mention the girlfriend we can't mention the depressive do we have to say well this man flew a plane into a cliff or whatever because he's just very horrid i mean you know 
politicisation of everything that happens um, is going on all the time. You know, recently, Ched Evans, the footballer, was acquitted of rape. Not one person that I've seen who previously was saying, I'm sure he's a horrid rapist, has now said, oh, it looks like I was wrong. You know, everyone's mind is made up all the time. And I think that's the scariest thing of all. I think we should all go around thinking, I'm probably wrong. I'd better listen to everyone else. It's hard to judge these things, but do you think it's getting worse? As you said earlier, this is a time in politics where these things that are happening in a crime novel would say it was implausible. And a lot of it seems to be driven by, broadly speaking, people's sense of identity, their feeling of not being listened to, their feeling of where they want to belong. And then these identities are becoming reinforced presumably by social media and other things. I mean, is this something that you think, say, in the last 10 years has got worse? I've noticed that since maybe 2011, 2012, that's when I started to notice it. And then you know what it's like once you notice something, you see it more and more. The thing that seems to be going wrong, as far as I can see, and the thing that I find most scary, is that people seem to be abandoning rational discussion. If there's a disagreement on social media, on Twitter or Facebook, it very soon descends into, well, I'm blocking you, you git, or you're a bigot and I'm not talking to you anymore. You don't see very many discussions where somebody lays out a view, then hears the arguments from the other side, then weighs up, I mean, here's a thing, weigh up the merits of the arguments from the other side. I mean, everyone should do that automatically. You hear the opposing views arguments and you think, well, that's a strong argument for the other side. Okay, that's maybe a point to them. But that's a weak argument, so I might be right about that. I mean, to me, this is just civilised conversation and discourse just breaks down without the willingness to do this. But I don't see much of that. And I also know how I feel. You know, on Twitter, when something comes up, you know, recently... I have wanted to say um, an innocent verdict is an innocent verdict. Not okay to still talk about that person as if they're guilty because you've just decided it when you weren't in the room, when you weren't on the jury, that's not okay. I don't say that on Twitter because I know that the response wouldn't be, well, actually, I believe it is okay and here's why. The response would be, blocking you, you're a bigot. And that, that is the real killer, I think. But I think these things are related, you know, people voting from anger and frustration, people blocking people who disagree with them. This is all part of the same thing. It's basically using politics and public life as a kind of venting ground for your own feelings of frustration. I mean, maybe I don't have that same thing because I I write fiction. (laughs) So if I've got axes to grind, I can grind them in my books. But is it also you write detective fiction and one of the features of detective fiction is at some point the detective does weigh it up the detective does try and see it from both sides so are you do you have a particular there's a strong link so I became addicted to mystery and crime fiction detective fiction at a very young age and it is I still am addicted to it and it is absolutely a genre where facts and arguments are treated with respect there's never been a crime novel I don't think where the detective at the end says you know John Wilkinson did it and here's why and lays out all the proof and everyone gathered for the denouement says yeah I don't really care about your proof you're a bigot you're blocked we still think we don't know who you're Belgian (laughs) you know that that never happens in in detective fiction 
the rules of logic are, you know, firmly adhered to. Um, and at, the risk, at the risk of sounding like Spock from Star Trek, I quite like that. Not that I'm purely logical, I'm often an emotional mess, and but that's why I find it all the more important to be able to separate rational arguments from how I happen to feel today. But then some of the characters, particularly in your recent novels, have embodied the other side of this in that they are driven to not the detectives, yes. but some of the other well, characters are driven by this sense of emotional grievance. But... Yeah, well, I mean, one of the things that fascinates me about politics, and I, I sort of can't believe that more people don't talk about this all the time, we don't arrive at our political views in a vacuum where we sort of lay everything out objectively. Nobody is really capable of being that objective, however hard they try. And and I have a theory, which I have certainly mentioned in my books and had characters sort of discuss this, because, you know, it's one of, one of the many bees in my bonnet. And my theory is that basically, whatever your most influential parent votes, or whatever their politics is, if they voted the opposite way, their children would too. So in other words, if you have a happy childhood, you love your family of origin, everything's fine, it's all idyllic and wonderful and you idolise your parents and think they're great, the chances are you will just happen to grow up with their political views. You'll vote the same way they do and you'll just naturally take on board all these family political beliefs because that family unit, that institution, seems to you like a benign and comforting thing. If you don't feel that way about your family of origin, and in particular the most influential parent within that family of origin, then the chances are you won't just accept their political outlook without question, and you're more likely to take a standpoint that is the opposite or against your parents' political views. But very few people ever talk about that. Very few people say, well, I vote Tory or I vote Labour, but to be honest, it's because I can't stand my mum and she votes the other way. And if she voted differently, I, I probably would too. Now, and I can see why people don't want to acknowledge it because it suggests that, you know, we haven't got as much free will as we think we have. But I can see it even in my kids, you know, and a politician's on the news. My kids are 14 and 12. They will look at me and my husband and say, do we like that politician? And I always say, you don't have any views about that politician, and I do have some, but I might be wrong. I think that is so important, because I want, if possible, to give my kids the best chance of actually being able to make up their mind without thinking, I'm annoyed with my mum, so I'm going to disagree with her, or I think my mum's great, because she's just taken me on a nice holiday, so I'm going to agree with her. But I notice, you know, my kids' school has kind of mock elections and mock referendums and all of that and all of their friends present their parents political views as their own and I think that's quite dangerous you know in a way I think those people who get to a certain age and look at their parents and think something dodgy about you views wise are maybe luckier because they get to step outside that tribal perspective and they have a chance to then define what their politics are whereas you know the idyllic family we all think this because we are a unit and think as one those those people don't stand a chance really of unless they're very independent minded of ever really forming their own political views so i'm going to ask this to finish and of course you answer it however you want but your your dad was a very well-known marxist intellectual very independent minded how did his 
views of politics shape yours growing up? Did you argue with him about politics? And just to let people know, so Sophie's dad was Norman Garris, um, who was professor of politics at Manchester, very influential, widely read writer about politics. I mean, my dad originally, I, I think he changed politically. So he did used to bang on about Marxism and revolution, which was hilarious because in real life, you know, if you if you took out one of the books from his shelf and put it back not in totally perfect alignment, he would notice and go and sort of straighten the spines of his books. And I would think this is not someone who would actually like a revolution. <laughs> so I never entirely <laughs> believe in that. Um, but no, he went on to be um, what some people would call a neocon because he, he started to say things like we need to defend Western liberal values and not everyone on the left liked that. So the general perception of him was that he became more right-wing as he got older. So, so independent-minded was my kind of euphemism for that, yeah. He, he, yeah, moved. he, he had, moved. He moved, yeah. Um, but from my point of view, I, I can really remember when I was young and he was very left-wing, he had friends and colleagues who were even more left-wing. And I can remember him on more than one occasion saying, X or Y or Z seems to think that, you know, if you vote Tory, that you must be evil but that's so wrong you know not all Tories are evil some of them are just misguided <laughs> and I can remember thinking I can't remember how old I was I can remember thinking hmm interesting but what if you're misguided I mean you know why would you say that without saying or they might be right and I'm wrong and that wasn't something that I heard so uh, you know I, my main characteristic is suspiciousness so I basically grew up thinking not sure about any of this I'm going to reserve judgment you know I have to, I've grown up to be a real real floating voter so I'm almost determined to approach every vote and every election as though I've never voted before and look at everything afresh which I think now is probably quite sensible you know Theresa May's Conservative Party feels very different to me already than David Cameron's Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party feels <laughs> very, very different from everything that isn't totally terrifying. So, you know, to say I've voted X, Y or Z in the past isn't going to help me. But I think it's actually good to approach each election thinking, what's going on now with these people who want me to vote for them? Who is the one that terrifies me the least? And vote for that one. Thank you very much to Sophie Hannah. Her latest book is The Closed Casket. It's the second in the new series of Hercule Poirot novels. It's got a fantastic twist, although calling it a twist doesn't really do it justice. If you like really smart detective fiction, you'll like that book. Next week, we'll be back to talk about the American election. We'll be back in Trump world, back in Hillary land. We'll preview what we think might happen. We're also going to be talking to the comedian Ahir Shah, who's currently touring with his very political stand-up. Just a quick heads up about some people we've got coming on this podcast over the next few weeks. We will be talking to the feminist philosopher Judith Butler. That will be after the election. So we may be talking to her about America's first woman president. We're going to be talking to Gary Young, the Guardian columnist and writer about his new book on gun crime in the United States. And we will be covering everything that happens in British politics, in American politics, in Brexit land as it unfolds. Do please stay with us. Please subscribe and rate us on iTunes if you're enjoying this podcast and join us again next week. My name is David Runciman and we've been Talking Politics. Mm -hmm.
When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. (laughs) (laughs) You will be (laughs) Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have like, you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. (laughs) This was like wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, (laughs) you, you were different. Like you were real different, bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com (laughs) 